Hi there, it's Nick here. Thanks so much for your continued support of the Nick Luck Daily Podcast. Wherever you consume your podcast, it is great to have you with us. I would alert you again to the racing app which is your one-stop shop and the easiest place now to download the show each and every morning as soon as it's ready. Many of you are doing so already, and that's not just because you can get access to all 880 episodes of this show, and very easily as well, but you can also watch live races. You can watch all the replays, and you can stream in the card with an active Fitstairs account. So do download it now, uh, the racing app. It's your one-stop shop and you will be able to catch up on all the previous episodes of your favourite daily racing podcast. You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Welcome to the show. Tuesday, the 12th of December, as it has been for most of this autumn, early winter, it is wet here in TW11. Another dump of overnight rain. It'll mean testing conditions for the foreseeable. You would have thought, and during the course of this programme, we'll be speaking to trainer Gordon Elliott about whether Jerry Colomb is likely to head to the King George in preference to the Savills chase over Christmas. He'll also share his thoughts on a potential new initiative from the BHA. I should say potential, more of that in a little while. We'll also be talking to his protege, Ollie Murphy, who trains the favourite for this weekend's December Gold Cup. And of course, the great Corinthian, David Maxwell, amongst the winners yesterday at Lingfield. And he's off to ride at Fontainebleau today. Look forward to speaking with him. But first of all, the Jockey Club has appointed its first female senior steward. That's a, a chair of the board in, in any other parlance uh, in its long history. It's history going back to the 1760s. Uh, Lydia Hislop joins me this morning. Um, that first female senior steward, Lydia, is Dido Harding, who has been in the news for a whole raft of reasons through the last few years. How is her appointment likely to go down, do you think? Um, you know, with, with mixed feelings, I think. I mean, it is significant that it, she will be the first female senior steward of the Jockey Club. It's only 60 years ago that they um, the, the Jockey Club allowed... Um, women to hold a full trainer's licence and women were only admitted to their ranks in 1977. It's an unpaid role, should be chair of essentially what is the most exclusive private members club in the country. But it's also more important than that in that it has considerable political clout within the industry. Its sub subsidiary jockey club race courses operates many of the most significant tracks in the country like Cheltenham, Aintree, Epsom, Newmarket and as a result of that the Jockey Club is British Racing's largest employer and it actually operates via rural charter which kind of assumes that the Jockey Club will always act in the best interests of racing as a whole and should essentially be left alone to get on with it. Now the reason why this will be um, received with mixed feelings is from a racing perspective this is somebody who is who is steeped in the sport and so uh, Dido Harding will be welcomed as one of their own because she is one of their own. She first joined the Jock Club's Board of Stewards in January 2018. She's going to be succeeding Sandy Dudgeon as its chair. Um, she um, had more than 25 wins as an amateur jockey. She's most keenly associated with Cool Dawn, who won the 1998 Cheltenham Gold Cup, and she rode um, before and after that. She's been a racecourse committee member at Cheltenham and a director of Racecourse Holdings Trust, which was the predecessor of Jockey Club Racecourses. However, she has become a controversial figure 
in public life. Um, she was chief executive of Talk Talk Group and she faced accusations of naivety and calls for her resignation after a cyber attack revealed the details of up to four million customers had been uh, leaked or, or got hold of. Um, the Information Commissioner office, office would later fine the company £400,000 for its negligence. That was in October 2015, its failure to implement the most basic cybersecurity measures. Um, in 2020, she was appointed by the then Health Secretary, um, Matt Hancock, in May of that year as head of NHS Test and Trace, despite having no back background in health. And the Public Accounts Committee report the following year concluded that Test and Trace had, a quote, not achieved its main objective to help break the chain of COVID-19 transmission and enable people to return towards a more normal way of life, despite receiving about 20% of the NHS's entire annual budget, or £37 billion over two years. And in 2022, the High Court um, ruled that Matt Hancock had failed to comply with the Equality Act of 2010 when appointing Harding. And Harding, it was controversial in that role because uh, she preferred to employ private companies, not the NHS, to run the test and trace programme. Um, and at, at the end, the assessment was that more, more than a quarter of people exposed to COVID-19 were not aware they needed to self-isolate. So it was not seen as a success. Earlier in October 2017, she'd been appointed chair of NHS Improvement and the Parliament's Health Select Committee, um, chaired by then Conservative MP Sarah Williston, recommended that she resign as a Conservative peer and sit, sit as a crossbench peer in order to allow for greater parliamentary and public confidence in her ability to challenge government ministers and policies if this role demands it. And Harding did not accept that ruling. So from for other people, this will be, and this is what Greg Wood described it as in his article earlier this, this month when preempting this decision made yesterday by the Jock Club, said that basically, basically is um, a chemocracy, more evidence of the chemocracy. Uh, Dida Harding is a member of the Conservative Party. She's been a peer in the House of Lords since 2014. She's always voted with the Tories. She's married to John Penrose, who's a Conservative MP, and she's a friend of former Prime Minister and our current Foreign Secretary, David Cameron. So she is well connected currently whether she'll be well connected after the next general election might be open to some doubt. And I'll just read you Greg Wood's um, uh, conclusion in his article in The Guardian of Monday, the 4th of December. Um, the death of Queen Elizabeth II might have been the right time to review the club's royal charter, but instead it seems to be business or chemocracy as usual. And while the Jockey Club electing its first female senior steward might look like a 21st century move, in many ways it is just really more of the mid-19th. Um, and the reason to think about that royal charter is, you know, is racing safe in the Jockey Club's hands? Because there's been a, been a few reasons to doubt that recently. Obviously, in the 1970s, they helped to save Aintree Racecourse, which is, you know, a fabulous thing that they did. But in 2017, there was this plan to sell Kempton Park. Now, this has been spun retrospectively as a sort of cunning play of housing law. But nonetheless, that that was a real threat. And it, I think it rocked many people's trust in the Jockey Club at the time that, that London might lose Kempton Park, that the country, that the racecourse industry might, racing industry might, lose Kempton Park. It pivoted um, Haydock towards the flat and seen its statue as a jumps course wither and that hasn't really helped the standing of northern jump racing and it, there has been the loss of national hunt racing to Nottingham and flat racing 
at um, Warwick. Now, you can argue the pros and cons of that. Uh, but it's also Jocular Race Courses run with the hair and the hounds over the fixture list and the quality of the race programme. So, you know, there are mixed feelings, I think, is the best way to sum that up. I, I suppose there's a question of balancing her perceived experience and competence in the field of horse racing against um, the, the reputational damage that Dido Harding has suffered over the last five years in a variety of different roles and the extent to which you're prepared to overlook that reputational damage in favour of what you perceive as somebody who has solid credentials in this sport and for the best interests of this sport. What does it also say about other candidates that might have been there in waiting? When I've heard people talk about this appointment, what I haven't heard is them say, oh, well, they could have gone for X or Y. And it made me wonder whether there was a long list of people within the Jockey Club uh, membership already who would have been eligible candidates. So do you think the position has lost some of its allure or do you think that's tied to the sport as well and maybe it's changing position in society? Well, two things. You want to have, you, you've got to have somebody who wants to do it for a start. Mm, and that's what I mean. People, finding people who want to do time-consuming, quasi-executive, non-executive roles, if that makes any sense. Because Yes, we should stress the role is unpaid, shouldn't we? Yeah, and the role is a, it's a non-executive role. Um, but it is one that has quite a, a bit of executive power, if that mm. if that doesn't sound ridiculous. And a significant commitment on your time. So yes. you've got to find somebody who wants to do it, who has some sort of meaningful credentials. And I wonder if that list is actually not that long. And I presume there are some sort of protocols as regards having had to have been a member of the board already have had to have had some experience of the organisation. And again, then you slim that list down even further. Um, it's, it's almost impossible to conceive that the Appointments Committee did not take stock of everything that you've just said. But if they didn't, then you'd think that would betray extreme naivety. Well, I think you've... It, it essentially comes down to, I think, whether you judge the, the Jockey Club is doing a, doing a, a good job because if you think it is and you want more of the same, then you will welcome this appointment. And you've just described the likely narrowing of the potential candidacy field. However, if you, if you want to change, and you know, that you think that there might be some changes that comes through from a different perspective of being the first female senior steward of the jocular. But if you're wanting broader, uh, wider uh, changes than that, then perhaps Baroness Dido Harding isn't the person that you would turn that you would immediately turn to for it. But the, the key point is we should judge her on what she does rather than on, as you say, what she's done in different roles. Here, she is going to have a role within a that she has clearly demonstrated uh, a great affinity and a great love for 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 many many years so let's move on and and consider the news that was leaked it seems to the racing post today that the british horse racing authority were considering reducing the maximum numbers any trainer could have in a class one or class two handicap to four and that you'd think would have obvious implications for the grand national and some of the larger trainers particularly those based in ireland 
Uh, it is according to the BHA. Um, well, it's not according to the BHA anything. They haven't confirmed or denied anything, but it is according to those who leaked the story simply in the consultation process, so it may not get past first base. Uh, I wonder what Gordon Elliott, the man who might be most uh, adversely affected by this, thinks of it. Uh, Gordon, just, just give me your, your thoughts having read this. Uh, look, it's a worry, obviously, Nick, to be honest. Uh, i just seen it last night. Someone sent me a picture of um, picture of on Twitter last night. But, uh, yeah, I think it's a massive worry for, for the owners as much as anyone because uh, these are the men that are investing, men and, uh, the people that are investing a lot of money into the game. And, um, yeah, I think it'll be a massive worry, to be honest. So, I guess from, from an outsider's point of view, if you, if you haven't got a vested interest, you look at, say, a race like the Troy Town when you ran... Uh, what was it, 17 runners, something like that? Yeah, I think we ended up with 14 or 15 runners. Yeah. Um, like, to be honest, there was only going to be about seven runners in the race if I didn't run the minute. So I didn't keep any horse out of a handicap. Or I would have raced, sorry. Uh, and every one of my horses were in the handicap proper. So I, I didn't break any rule or do anything, ru- anything wrong by running my horses. If, um, if anyone else would, would, would run, they could, have, they could have ran the field, didn't kill. Uh, but I think it's for sponsors and race courses, it's massive to support these races, you know. You see, you see, the, you see the problems in the UK with small fields, and, uh, I wouldn't like to see it happen in Ireland. I can't imagine that even if the BHA did bring this in, that this is a situation that would then be necessarily replicated in, in any other jurisdiction. Um, but even so, it would impact on you if you were bringing runners to, to races like the, the Coral Gold Cup or the Paddy Bat, particularly the Grand National. That's the one, isn't it, really, with a, a 34-runner maximum? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, yeah, it would be a massive worry. I mean, look, but if you go back over the years, um, are you there, Nick? Yeah, I'm here. Hello? Yeah, I'm here. Sorry. I mean, this hasn't just happened overnight, Nick. I mean, if you go back to the 60s, Tom Draper was winning Irish Nationals. From the, from, from the early 60s through to 66 or 7 I think he won 7 in a row I think back in them days it might have been a 10 or 12 runner fields but he'd have to feel he'd over 50% of the fields in the race you know um, you know Michael Dickinson in 83 had 10 out of 10, 5 out of 10 in, in the Gold Cup and then 20 years ago Martin Pipe had 8 out of eight of the field and 9 of the field in 2 of the race at the Cheltenham Festival in, in 03 so I don't think it's something that's just happened overnight. So I don't know, see what the big problem is, to be honest. So in, in your opinion, is the idea of the, the sort of super trainer, if you like, yourself or Willie Mullins or Paul Nichols or Nicky Henderson or whoever, do you think these are simply cyclical um, things in, in horse racing? You don't believe that that is something that is that is just trending one way and big stables are only getting bigger? Look, unfortunately, that's the way the world is going. Every, every aspect of sport and everything, the big stables are getting bigger and the bigger soccer teams or football teams or hurling teams are getting bigger and stronger and harder to beat. But, I mean, if you go back to the Galway Plate this year, I had six runners in the Galway Plate with six different owners. You know, it's it's very hard um, for me to have to tell someone that they can't run. And Chase this year, I had nine runners with seven different owners. You know, it's it's uh, the, the the Midlands national, the Munster national this year. Right, eight eight runners and four different owners. But if I didn't run, if I only ran one horse in that race, there'd been five runners in that race. There'd been five runners in a hundred thousand pound race. So, listen, I'm a big believer in, spo- in supporting racing and keeping it going and doing the best for the race course, the sponsor, and the owners. And I think this could be lunacy if, if they bring a rule like this in. 
Gordon, you talk about small fields, and we're we're beset by small fields in some of the big races, as well, the, you know, the Grade Ones as well as the handicaps. Um, it might well be that you could add quite a bit of pep to the King George the Sixth Chase at Kempton over Christmas if you run your um, star second season chaser and down royal winner Jerry Colomb. Is that the way you're leaning at the moment? Yeah, at the moment we're leaning towards the King George and Jerry Colomb. Um, it looks like the race is probably going to cut up a bit more than Leperstown. I mean, we go to Leperstown, we get a four or five in the race, and you've got uh, Martin Brazel's horse and, and a num- number of others. But at the moment we're leaning towards the King George, yes. Um, how is he? He's in great form. He doesn't do anything very fancy at home. Uh, he's a very laid-back horse, but we're going to give him a bit of work on grass on Friday morning. And uh, all being well, we'll probably early in the week confirm where we're going to go. But at the moment, we're probably leaning uh, slightly towards the King George. Uh, that was training Gordon Elliott. Um, I think we'll talk about the the possible, possible limitation that might be imposed by the BHA if a consultation with stakeholders is correct. Um, regarding limiting trainers to having four runners maximum in class one or class two handicaps. Uh, this obviously applies to only races within their, their jurisdiction, um, but it would apply probably chiefly to somebody like Gordon Elliott and particularly uh, to, to the Grand National, which is now limited to 34 runners, of course. And you wonder whether that might have been what prompted this, though that's, that's anybody's guess, Lydia. And it, it is only reputed and it is only in consultation phase. Yes, uh, this is a paper that's been leaked to uh, the Racing Post, and so uh, somehow they, it, it has got out there. Um, it's trying to address the, um, the the super trainers, the fact that more and more of uh, racing's best horses are being collected in fewer and fewer hands. And you see that particularly in Ireland with um, the Bayer Moths that are the Willie Mullins and Gordon Elliott stables. But you also see it a great deal on the flat in Britain, um, and, you know, potentially a divide between the sort of southern based trainers like Nicky Henderson and Paul Nichols and trainers ba- based elsewhere in the country over jumps in Britain. And the concern, as you say, I think has been brought to he- head by, I mean, I would surmise it has, uh, by the restriction in the number of runners in the Grand National. Um, the Grand National was... Um, saw both Gordon Elliott and Willie Mullins have five runners in the 2023 edition. And in the 2022 edition, um, Gordon Elliott had seven uh, declared runners runners for the race. And so there is concern that you won't get the sort of David and Goliath matchups that essentially competition is the heart of the handicap system. And part of the um, of handicap racing's appeal to the public is enabling um, yards and owners that are uh, monetized it differently, um, you know, th- those that have got a lot of money and those that haven't got so much, to put it to put it boldly, to be able to keep compete against each other on a level playing field. And the concern is that if more and more of uh, one trainer or one owner has more and more of the field, that that appeal will reduce and that there will be an an active impact on what the what racing fans and the wider public feel about horse racing. However, this has got to go through um, stakeholder consultation and there will be a lot of trainers out there who won't want to vote for it because it affects their own um, livelihoods, their own business structure. But um, and also there's a problem that whenever you, you have this kind of vote, um, when self-interest comes up against the long term objective health of the sport and there are practical concerns as well uh, you know that 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 
you know maybe could be got around and maybe there are legal concerns about the about the concept as well and, and i suppose you've also got to ask yourself well if you do this are you guaranteeing or going in any way to guarantee the future health of the sport i can see the rationale behind it you're trying to make the sport a bit more diverse you're maybe trying to encourage owners to look elsewhere in terms of where they might have their horses trained and you balance that against restraint of trade and i guess that will be where the, the legal challenge comes in but given the state that the sport is in and given your points that have been extremely well made about they're not they're simply not being enough animals to for to fill the the program book as it stands are we in a position sufficiently strong enough to be saying right well actually that could have been a 17 runner handicap you know it's now going to be a seven runner handicap has, has the sport got got the time or the luxury to be able to to work in that way no, I mean, again, it seems to be focusing on things that are symptoms rather than the actual cause of the problem, which we've discussed again and again and again on this podcast and I've written about. And I still don't see any evidence of the industry showing even the slightest amount of appetite to tackle that fundamental problem. And instead, we've got this tinkering around the edges. Um, you know, super trainers is an issue, but the fundamental underlying issue is there aren't enough of the right horses being trained in in Britain and being bred, owned and bought across Europe, uh, both for um, flat racing and jump racing with different emphases in, in each each discipline. Um, that, and what, that's and the that thing that's fundamental the, problem. Yeah, the thing that struck me last night was, of course, you, you can't blame selling horses to Australia for that one either. So, so with jump racing, you know, I... I accept the fact that there are more talented horses off the flat that might be going elsewhere, but you can't you can't um, explain away the, the the lack of horses filling grassroots jump racing on on foreign markets. No, no, you can't. I mean, I, I suspect there might be some small impact of horses that might otherwise have gone jump racing that are being sold towards the end of their three year old career. But it's a multifaceted picture. It's to do with the breeding of horses as well, and where do the horses that start off point to pointing. Um, you know, and and get sorted at an earlier stage than they used to, particularly in the Irish form of the industry. Um, you know, what, what yeah. happens to them Absolutely. next? All of the, all of those questions. But um, the, another thing that has to be looked at, I would have thought, is the regulation of pre-trainers, because it is the existence of of these organisations that also enable these super trainers, because it means that super trainers can ship in and out their horses at different times of the season. They can have their next generation of horses being prepared somewhere else. And the issue, I think, for a smaller scale trainer who is increasingly being swallowed up by by this this structure is that they are having to um, to come up to all the sorts of standards that go along with having a training license. You know, there are health and safety standards, there are safeguarding standards, there are work and employment standards, there are there are welfare standards. There are so many different things, um, that hurdles that they rightly have to clear in order to be able to have their license that do not apply to pre-trainers. And I think that the BHA should be licensing pre-trainers. And I think that could have an impact in terms of how the whole landscape is set up. But, you know, again, I mentioned some practical circumstances as well. You know, we have a, a rule whereby a horse must be in a yard 14 days in advance of it running. Well, you know, it could just go elsewhere, couldn't it? Now, maybe you could, you could, you could ma manage to um, bring in a rule to address that. But Maybe you couldn't, you know, an owner limit potentially is another way of going. But, you know, that again, that could be worked around. And there is the potential that people will argue that this will put off people who invest 
a great deal in the sport yeah. and should they be put off in that way now you know that's that's a difficult one because people would counter um yes uh, the sm- the person with the smaller amount of money looks at those uh, very um, very rich people with so many horses and you know and and thinks how can I possibly compete against them I'm going to go and spend my money in another sport and then you've mentioned the restraint of trade aspect against that will be uh, the right um, or, or the perceived right of a sport to set its own rules. And uh, you could see that potentially being tested in court, those two different views. On balance, it's a no from me, I think. Um, right. <laughs> what about... Yes, yes face, face the major problem, the real problem. Stop stop turning away from the, from yeah. the major problem and do something about that, please. Uh, well, and the major problem could manifest itself in the King George. Now, I grew up going to four and three runner King Georges, and no one was talking about the death of the sport then. Um, I suspect they would if we get a three or four runner King George this time round, and I can see why they they want to go there with Jerry Colon, who, by the way, is not a slow horse. That myth needs to be kicked into the long grass, doesn't it? I don't think he's slow, but I think he's slow away from his fences. I think that was the key difference between him and the real whacker in terms of the alacrity with which he got back racing after jumping each time. I think he's a he's a, a, a fantastic horse. I think he's a massive player in the Gold Cup. I, I don't think he will be best suited to the King George. However, as you've just touched upon, how deep is this King George? Who exactly is he going to face? The title holder, Brave Man's Game, who I think you know will be a will give a proper defence to his crown. He hasn't had the most straightforward season coming into this. There's been a bit of from the outside, it seems, a little bit of indecision, which has ended up with him being beaten uh, twice for for different reasons. Uh, last fence error in the Charlie Hall, and just looking flat in the Betfair Chase last time. But Paul Nichols is going to have to get him back on his game um, quickly for the King George. Alaho, I noticed, and you mentioned to me before we just started um, this broadcast, that um, he was drifting last night. So is he going to run? He's also entered the Savills chase. Shishkin has obviously not been able to have any of the preps that Nicky Henderson, or three of them, <laughs> Nicky Henderson has tried to give him going into the King George. You've got Royal Pagai, who has won the, the Betfair chase with at his favourite Haydock, but he would have been third best and a distant third best on merit in the King George if his stable meant Lompresse had stood up. Um, and the real whackers in there, well, he finished lame in the Paddy Power Gold Cup last time out. That's all right, Gino, um, who won the um, Coral Gold Cup. Uh, yeah, OK, but he couldn't go the early pace. And that doesn't sound like a King George winner, does it? Moving from Handicap Company to Grade 1. How about Hewick? Yeah, well, uh, he says he's going to run if the conditions are right. So he'd have to find himself again, I think, wouldn't he? The last couple of goes have been a bit disappointing. They have. They have. Um, He ran a monster race um, in the Gold Cup. Um, He was still in there pitching um, at the second last where he ended up falling heavily. He did bounce back a win at Sandown after that. But as you say, he's since run at Otoy over hurdles and he's also won in the, run in the Galway Plate. And certainly the latter performance was lesser. But he would have the, the right style of running and the ability at his best to be a serious threat there. Well, he's a big price if you like it. All right, the big race this weekend at Cheltenham is the December Gold Cup. There's a short price favourite for the race as well, Thunder Rock, whose former Carlisle took a boost with Marlon Mission's very good run in the Coral Gold Cup at Newbury. Thunder Rock's trainer's Ollie Murphy, and he's with me now. We've spoken about the horse before, Ollie, but uh, on the basis of that Carlisle run, is it fair to say he's taken another step forward? 
Yeah, 100%. Um, I think a little bit more experience under his belt will have done the world good as well. So, uh, yeah, listen, look like it looks like he's on a hopefully a workable mark looking at the, the, uh, yeah, the result from the, from the Coral Gold Cup. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to running him. He's in good nick and, um, yeah, really look forward to him. He, he was chipping away around with the, with the best staying novice chasers last season. I mean, do you think what he's he's got what it takes to make into a into a genuine graded horse? Yes, potentially. Yeah, potentially. Um, we kind of were torn between the idea of a Peterborough chase or, or this race, and kind of came to the conclusion if he was going to win a Peterborough, go close. He'd be very competitive for Mark in the mid one forties. So, listen, very good prize money on offer. He's been trained for the race. Um, I don't think this could be a humongous field, and yeah, he looks unexposed having his first run the handicap and. If he gets into a rhythm, I think he's uh, got a, got a lovely chance. Uh, and I noticed you, you were toying with with going up in trip last year. You ran him in the in the race behind the real whacker over three miles, the Brown Advisory at, at Cheltenham. Do you think the the more um, stamina requirements of the new course will suit him better than the old course at Cheltenham? I, I think it'll give him a little bit more time. I'm not sure he's an out and out three miler. I'm not quite sure he stayed the the, the, the couple of times we, we we tried him over the trip. So. Uh, yeah, I think we're better off riding him fairly positively over over two and a half, kind of two five, than than dropping him in over over three. So, yeah, I think uh, conditions will suit, triple suit, and uh, yeah, he's in very good form. We're looking forward to running him. So he's just one of those that needs a bit of time to warm up. Hundred percent. He, he, he's a bit cold early on in his race, um, but yeah, he's um, he's a horse who does warm into it, and uh, yeah, if he's in striking distance turning in, hopefully he'll uh, yeah he'll go close. All righty, thanks so much. Good luck. Thanks, Nick. All right, if you are feeling in any way doomy or gloomy about the sport, as you might be by this point in the episode, then please welcome in David Maxwell, um, who is uh, everybody's um, favourite advocate for the joys of horse racing and was a winner yesterday at Lingfield Park uh, on a horse trained by Harry Derham, who made quite an impression, I thought. And he is, um, he is now... Where are you now, David? Uh, I'm just on my way to Fontainebleau. Uh, ah, Fontainebleau, to ride... To ride all in you in the one twenty-five, okay, twelve twenty-five UK time. So um, that obviously will be a, a task that is going to be made more enjoyable by the confidence that you will have been uh, filled with after yesterday's victory by eleven lengths on Joker de May at Lingfield. And for you, after a little period without a winner, how important was that? Well, today I couldn't be less me about the sport if I tried. It was a fantastic day yesterday, but Nick, it was just over 365 days since my last winner. Was it really? Um, it's, yeah, it was Dolphin Square at uh, Sandown this time last year on the, on the uh, Tingle Creek day. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's felt, it's felt like quite a long drive. I was actually starting to wonder if it was legal to ride winners at over the age of 45. Um, and it happened and it, the horse looks a bit of a prospect as well he looks he's very nice he's a really admirable horse he's got a lovely attitude jumps really well tries really hard you know he just loves the game of racing actually and Harry Derham I know has been a friend of yours for a long time he got a massive kick out of it you obviously knew each other from his time as assistant to Paul Nichols uh, were you pretty th- thrilled to ride a winner for him as well it, it was great. You know, they're such a lovely team at, at Harry Derham's. He's really well supported. He, and I think he's probably a young man with a long way to go. And for you now today, uh, you're riding for Noel George and Amanda Zetterholm. Um, just tell me a little bit more about the horse and about the race you're riding in. 
Uh, well, it's it's a um, uh, it's a, a maiden hurdle three year old question whether forty five year old men should be riding three year old maiden hurdlers, um, but we're doing it anyway. Um, he's he's won a bumper in France. He's nice. Keep a tea bought him for me. Um, and I've been school him at Knowles a couple of times. Seems to jump quite nicely, but um, but we'll we'll see how he handles it today. Uh, and then you've got a couple of rides later in the week. Bataillon, I see you're riding at, at Warwick on. Well, uh, what are we today? When uh, Tuesday, Thursday on Thursday. Yeah, Thursday. He's he's nice as well. He's uh, he's with Philip Hobbs. He uh, had a run at Ascot um, earlier in the well, last month, and. He, I was very pleased with him actually and I think he'll run very well on Thursday he's probably he might be reasonably well treated at, at 110 so I wouldn't be without hope for him and you, you got stuck in at the Cheltenham Sale um, uh, Festival and bought Queensbury Boy the Harry Derham trains and you got him engaged at the weekend is he going to run? Yeah, I think he will as long as the ground's okay. Uh, so the, again, Harry likes him. Um, you know, you just never know with the horses um, first time out if they, if they, you know, they, they're showing you plenty at home. He, Harry likes him. Just see when he goes to the races. It's all in their head, really, isn't it? And I, I did mention this on TV the other day that I rang you in the summer and you said, if you ring me up to ask me whether I'm retiring, the answer is no. There. You've got everything. Three-year-old hurdlers, bumper horses, chasers, everything. You name it. Number of trainers, England, France. No signs of, um, you know, diminishing your, your your efforts at the moment. The jockey's getting older, but the horses are getting younger. Keep it going that way. <laughs> David, good luck today. Thanks very much, Nick. Well, it's Tuesday, so we go around the bloodstock world with our friends at Weatherby's. And I always enjoy our trips to South Africa and there wasn't one I enjoyed more than when we checked in with Susan Rowett from Vastfontein and do you know what I can't believe it's over two and a half maybe even nearly three years ago so we are well worth a trip back because lots has happened between then and now and particularly um, as regards one extraordinary story that involves uh, a great safari through Africa and another one that involves a champion stallion in 2023. Susan, it's great to talk to you again. I think we might start with the latter. Give me the green light. Uh, tell me how he's been getting on. Oh, he's, he had a fantastic year last year, the season that ended um, end of July 2023. He ended up being, I mean, by far, champion sire of two-year-olds, champion sire of three-year-olds, and uh, champion sire overall. So, you know, that, that, that was fantastic for, for him. And it might just be worth a little recap as to as to where he came from and, and how he's established himself so well. He was bought as a weanling in Australia by um, Hassan Adams and uh, the Snaiths, the Justin and uh, his parents, Chris and Sue Snaith. And he came, um, was brought out and he was trained by Justin. And he was a very good, tough two-year-old. And then he won the Queen's Plate as a three-year-old, which hadn't been done for about... I don't know, 50 years, hasn't been done since. And he then got injured and we brought him to stud as an early four-year-old. Um, and that's and he took off. And I suppose he had that combination of quality and, and precocity that you're you're looking for as a, as a mayor owner. So people knew he could do it and knew he could get it to happen reasonably soon. Yes, he, it was quite funny because he, he was a bit slow when he started as a two-year-old. And when we had the sort of share, shareholders meeting in about May, people were a bit gloomy. And, and we set his share service fee at the meeting. And then the, he just took off. And I think he won 
Um, he won a Group 1 before the end of the year as T-Rails, and he had two or three more stakes winners. And suddenly, he, there we were, and we were inundated because we'd already set the service fee. So, so that's so that that was, um, and he's never looked back from from that game. He's had, a, you know, top horses produced every year, and um, yeah, I mean, it's the top two of the Group 1 winning T-Rails last year were Give Me the Green Lights. Uh, um, lucky lad and Sankringham Summit, both bred by us. Uh, so he's he's really done us fantastically. So. So, so he's your he's your great anchor, and every stud needs that, and it enables the other stallions to to shine as well. You've got Master of My Fate and Eric the Red. Uh, what expectations do you have for for them this this season? Well, um, well Master, he he was been runner up um, sire to give me the green light. He's been leading. He was leading the table up until uh, for the current season up until a couple of weeks ago. So he he's consistently sort of in the you know top top four sires in the country. Uh, he gets slightly he gets longer. He's got more um, scopia, slightly more classic type horses that um, than Gimme gets. Um, you know, he and he's very popular, but a bit less commercial. You know, not the uh, top two sires in South Africa are. Give me the green light and versing Getrix for sales appeal, and uh, but your your you know master's not far behind. So, and I've got to talk to you about what what you described as the great safari, and this is involving involving a filly called Empress of Fate, who you bred. Uh, what happened to her after that? Okay, so she she was born she was born here, and we took her to the sales in twenty twenty one, which were a bit depressed, and there was a con- Kenyan contingent of trainers that came down. So they um, and Joe Carrari, who'd previously bought a Master of My Fate colt from us, and done very well with him, he he bought her, and the, all they they made about sort of you know 15, 15, 20 purchases, and they all went off by truck up to Kenya. And then, and I follow Kenyan racing a bit because we, we've had some good horses also there. And then her year-oldest half-sister by Gimme the Green Light, she won a, a group two and a three. And then her year younger, um, Gimme the Green Light Colt, um, he was the group one winner that I just referred to, Lucky Lad. And we don't have a daughter, so I thought, no, I must get her back because... And, and so um, through Sharon Patterson, who does all the liaison to the Kenyans, we uh, made an offer to Joe Karari, the trainer, and that was accepted in, I think, May la- in May last year, May this year. And um, I remember this because it was over Ascot week, and every day Nick would I'd see Nick, and I'd show him a picture of where she'd got to. So she left, it took her a week to get from Nairobi down across the border into Tanzania, and then very slow stages through Tanzania because the roads are shocking. And then another border crossing into Zambia and across Zambia and um, then into Zimbabwe. And then finally she got to Harare. So that, that was about a week of just different distances every day, maybe you know, eight to ten hours in a truck every day on appalling roads. So she got there and she was pampered and looked after in Zimbabwe and done the various quarantines and things there. And then eventually, I think it's end of September, she crossed into South Africa and we then couldn't get her down to the Cape because of um, the horse sickness movement restrictions that we do in the hope to get the exports going again. Uh, so she went to Maritzfontein and 
was perfectly uh, ready to be covered and she's got covered by Digital Age, a son of Invincible Spirit, who's standing his first season here. And eventually, um, on Sunday, she arrived back here in the place of her birth. So so it's got to be fate then that her that, that her progeny are going to fly the flag, fly the flag from the start. You've put so much into getting into getting her back. Why did this family mean quite so much? Um, it's it's a very long, a very old, a very classy family, um, and we we bought her this filly's grandmother from um, who'd been bred by uh, Pat O'Neill, who originally herself came had but spent time in Kenya. Um, it's just a solid, solid family that always produces, um, you know, very good horses. So it's a big, a solid page. And uh, as I said, I was worried that um, her mother was is now whatever fifteen or so, and I just thought Ooh, we don't have haven't got a daughter, so let's get it back. But it's it's a very one of the one of the good old families in South Africa, originally from Australia too. So. Uh, and your, your father established the stud in, in, in 1974, and it's been such a, a hugely important uh, stud to the, to the future and well-being of racing in, in South Africa. The last couple of people I've spoken to from the, from the country seem to have given me some encouragement about, about, about racing there. Would you, would you be able to share that? Yes, since we last spoke, I think we, you know racing was in real doldrums then, um, but we've it's really um, turned the corner because it's gone from you know being uh, from being sort of run the, some of the two of the centres being run you know purely for for profit by you know corporatisation everything and that's reverted to being in the hands of passionate racing people who are who are bringing back uh, what you know the thrill of racing and, and um, referring to, to full racing and up in Gauteng and Johannesburg and uh, Hollywood Bets in uh, Durban and, and Hollywood Bets also now in, in Cape, Cape Town. And it's really the sort of, it's such a pleasure now going racing here at Kenilworth um, because they've, it's, a, it's a real nice experience, Beautiful, lovely food, lovely venue, some live music, you know, just nicely in the background, and um, the, they had the sevens rugby up on a screen as well, and people, nice tables. It was just really good. So, and they, the Cape Racing are really pushing the syndicates. Uh, they've got about thirty going now, assisting the trainers to run them, and I think that's bringing in new new people. So, I know a lot of English people come and spend a couple of months here in the over Christmas and January, February. So please come and see the new look Kenilworth. I know if, the ra- if they're racing people, they probably come here to get away and have a break from racing, but uh, do come and um, come and see the new look Kenilworth. It's fantastic. Well, the endorsement is fantastic. Love to do that. Susan, thanks so much for, for your time today and all the very best with the Stallions and, of course, with the, this filly who's had, who'd ha- who's had quite a journey. Thanks so much. Thank you, Nick. Bye. All right, my thanks to Susan. Lydia is with me still and has a tip for you for today. I'm going to the 115 at Wincanton, which is the National Hunt Novices Handicap Hurdle over three miles. And Rajaran, who is pretty lightly raced, but has shaped as though he will improve for stepping up to this kind of trip. He might have to be ridden a little bit more um, positively than uh, Joe Anderson did last time at at Wincanton. But um, I I think he can find a great deal of improvement into the handicap company and Upton trip for Joe Anderson and Emma Lavelle in the 115 at Wincanton today.
All right, Lydia, thank you so much. Thank you very much for your time today. That was Tuesday, December the 12th. We'll see you again tomorrow. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Thank you.